The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast, where we give you insights into the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. I'm Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, and in each episode, I have a conversation with a guest who will stimulate your mind and give you a greater understanding of yourself, others, and the world we live in. Hopefully, we'll also provide a glimpse into human possibility. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcast. Today, it's a great honor to have David Sloan Wilson and Stephen Hayes on the podcast. David Sloan Wilson is president of the Evolution Institute and a SUNY Distinguished Professor of Biology and Anthropology at Binghamton University. Sloan Wilson applies evolutionary theory to all aspects of humanity, in addition to the biological world. His books include Darwin's Cathedral, Evolution for Everyone, The Neighborhood Project, and Does Altruism Exist? Stephen Hayes is foundation professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Nevada, Reno. An author of 44 books and over 600 scientific articles, his career has focused on an analysis of the nature of human language and cognition and the application of this to the understanding and alleviation of human suffering and the promotion of human prosperity. Hayes has received several awards, including the Impact of Science on Application Award from the Society for the Advancement of Behavior Analysis and the Lifetime Achievement Award from the Association for Behavioral and Cognitive Therapies, ABCT for short. Together, they edited the recent book, Evolution and Contextual Behavioral Science, an Integrated Framework for Understanding, Predicting, and Influencing Human Behavior. David and Stephen, what a great honor to have you both on the podcast today. Thank you very much. That's fun to be here. Looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to it. I was, I was just going to say, this is definitely one of the longest intros I've ever done in this podcast because there's two of you and you're both like legendary and have a have a long bio to each of you. But, you know, I think it, it does put into context a little bit, your both of your unique flavors, so to speak. And then it'll be really cool to talk today about, you know, how you, you both got together and decided to do this great grand synthesis and integration of different things. So along those lines, let me start by, could each of you kind of talk a little bit about your own perspective like that you primarily have focused on in your career? Um, we could start with Steve, Steven. why don't you go first? Okay. Well, I'm a you know, I have a background in uh, in behavior analysis. I'm a clinical psychologist, but I did basic work, uh, animal work even. But what I took from that was this kind of radical functionalism, interesting context, and in a kind of a, a multi-dimensional way. I wrote about evolutionary topics actually with some regularity, but not with, in hindsight, much sophistication. I kind of have uh, 
in my career tried to fill what I saw as holes in the behavioral tradition. And the two biggest holes were you really have to deal with language and cognition. Something different is happening that we're doing right now compared to what the bird is doing outside the window. If you just compare it over you know, 200 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, it's very, very uh, obvious that there's something in language and cognition that is perhaps not unique, but is at least so characteristic that it requires a special analysis. And the other is one that's frustrating for the Skinnerian wing, which is they tried to do it and failed, of trying to find a way to, to uh, put a selection within the lifetime of the individual both by direct contingencies reinforcement, I'm beginning to really think also by contingencies of meaning, by the meaning systems that are afforded by uh, uh, symbolic learning, to put that into the larger fabric of uh, evolutionary thought. And so our book, you know, is titled Contextual Behavioral Science, not so much to mean a, a specific group, but more the behavioral scientists who think in this functional, contextual, multidimensional uh, longitudinal selective way. And I was just been uh, overjoyed to over the last uh, 10 years or so, it's been a while now, David, hasn't it been to, uh, to find David as a colleague and somebody who's, you know, really committed to exploring that unexplored territory of the interface between the traditional evolutionary thinking as it embraces an extended synthesis and a behavioral science wing that has been interested in that, but needed a lot of education and, and still does uh, in the larger field of evolutionary thought, seeing that wing as a, as a partner. Great. And then what is evolutionary science? And it's interesting you called evolutionary science you know, instead of like evolutionary psychology. Is there a difference between the two? Is one a larger umbrella? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Evolutionary science covers everything, all living processes. I was trained as an evolutionary biologist, started out working with non-humans, and then sort of added humans to my toolkit. I got my PhD in 1975, which was the same year that uh, the other Wilson, Edward O. Wilson, published Sociobiology. Oh, wow. And of course, the idea that you can have a single theory that applies to all social species, including humans, was what he introduced and which was outrageous at the time, created so much controversy. But for me, just getting my PhD then, that was just an exciting prospect. So you could call me the first post-sociobiology generation. Mm -hmm. And as I matured as a scientist, I thought more and more about humans and meaning systems and language. And a lot of it was centered on multi-level selection, which is what I'm best known for. The idea that adaptations can evolve at the group level or even the ecosystem level if special conditions are, are met. And uh, so... The idea that evolution needs to expand beyond the biological sciences to include all things human includes psychology plus more. It includes yeah. all of the human-related disciplines. When I um, landed at Binghamton University, I created the first campus-wide evolutionary studies program called EVOS. Mm. And then uh, after uh, building that on campus, I thought, Gosh, let's use our community as a like a field site, as an evolutionary ecologist would understand the term. And I was especially interested in studying altruism and prosociality in the context of everyday life. So I boldly announced the Binghamton Neighborhood Project, started to do this kind of work. I remember when and you announced soon it. Enough, I remember I was there. It? I was there in the audience when you announced it uh, at Neeps, two thousand six. Yeah. yeah, there you go. Yeah, and it was with quite a bit of hubris. Yeah. And soon enough, I was discovered by people who were already doing this kind of work in the applied sciences, uh, and especially Tony Biglin, who is a prevention scientist. And uh, what's prevention science? It's a term that not many people have heard, but it is one of the contextual behavioral sciences. And to make a long story short, it was Tony who introduced me to Steve. And then we started to work together, and I began to see that what Tony was doing at a population level and what Steve was doing largely at an individual level, but also extending into groups. And a third person, Dennis Embry, was doing in an entrepreneurial way. He's a scientific entrepreneur, was applied cultural evolution. Mm. I see that these guys were really good at actually making positive change happen 
in the real world at a variety of scales. So they were doing basically what I aspired to do. And yet our respective disciplines were all different from each other and different from evolutionary psychology. We can segue now to evolutionary psychology and actually just signal, and we can spend more time on it during this interview, a very complicated and, and in retrospect, crazy history of academic psychology in which behaviorism first had a was dominant as the most scientific approach to psychology, but then was deposed by the so-called cognitive revolution. And then evolutionary psychology emerged as a critique of the cognitive revolution, the idea that the mind is not a single computer, but many special purpose computers, the idea of massive modularity. And evolutionary psychology, actually both cognitive psychology and evolutionary psychology rejecting behaviorism as part of the so-called standard social science model as something that was somehow fundamentally wrong. And here I am, an evolutionist, working with Steve Hayes, who is part of the Skinnerian tradition, uh, although he's also gone beyond it. And so we have this profound lack of integration and I hate to say it, self-described evolutionary psychology playing a role in the lack of integration. So yeah. these are some of the things that we need to discuss. And what our book represents, I think, the way I think of it is it's evolutionary psychology done right. Oh, nice. It actually does justice to the, to the modularity concept, does justice to it, but also does justice to the immense open-ended aspects of human nature, both at the individual level, the individual's capacity for open-ended change, and also the cultural capacity for open-ended change. If you if you can't acknowledge that, then you don't understand our species. Oh, I like that. Steve, you said that Skinner thought of himself as an evolutionary psychologist. Is that right? He did. It's a, and the, for some time, I mean, the, the last sentence he wrote the night before he died, which was to finish an article uh, coming out of an award he won for the American um, Psychological Association, said wow. that he predicted that variation and selection would be important to the future of applied work in his area. And he wasn't sure that they'd be called psychologists, but he was sure that evolution was important. I mean, and then he dies the next morning. And it's kind of a, a symbolic wow. expression of what he was trying to do, but also the frustration of the inability to make that happen, because it, it isn't even just that it wasn't picked up. It, the the behavioral folks were outright rejected. Uh, mm -hmm. And this uh, link between contingencies of reinforcement and uh, cultural evolution on the one hand and genetic evolution on, on the other was outright rejected and really even laughed at as a loose metaphor that had nothing to do with how variation selection actually worked in these other dimensions. And what gives the lie to that is multidimensionality and multi-level thinking. And when you when you add those back in, and then you say, well, wait a minute, you know, where did these cultural variations come from? They had to start somewhere. And, you know, they start often, you can see it in the places where we've actually looked at it, you know, this particular animal did this particular thing. And then through social learning processes, are protected through the troop. And now you have this evolutionary thing. And then you start seeing, well, then, but look what happens. I mean, the just the uh, Japanese uh, snow monkeys, so-called, that uh, have been followed now for many decades. You know, the fact that they're out there washing their potatoes in the, and first in the streams, but then actually in the ocean and salting them there. And now they're starting to catch fish and they're actually changing, you know, their diet and which is changing some of their, uh, you know, group practices around things having to do with mating choice and and it's like you know you see right in front of you the kind of uh you know the uh, extended version of the moths changing their coloring when the uh, uh, when coal is no longer burned in in england etc you if evolution happens fast enough mm. that you can see that that you have to account for variation selection within the lifetime of the individual now you add in that epigenetic processes and other things like that. And we're now able to do some of these things literally in minutes. I mean, you can sit somebody down for 15 minutes and keep track of how many of their genes are reliably turned on or off. 
there's a nice little piece with 15 minutes meditation affecting something like three percent of your your genes in a, in a reliable way how long you know we're doing doing that work but you know that the cells are systems that are just organized to turn environment and behavior into biology so where is environment and behavior not just in population biology and some of these things but in the the grit and grain well, well i think it's in psychology and so i tip my hat to the evolutionary psychologists in the sense of insisting that the most important theory in all the life sciences be given adequate attention and due weight inside psychology. That's the right move. And I think they can be forgiven for not knowing how to do that and kind of taking the obvious step forward to say, well, what just happened in the Paleolithic period, for example, that might have set us up to do this or that. That's important. It actually doesn't get wiped away. I mean, some of the more integrative ideas as massive modularity still have a role. There's still pieces where that's true. But we get to, as we said it in the book, you know, everyone was wrong. And now it's time for us all to work together. And I'm part of what I'm sort of stunned by is how much needs to be done. And with all this respect, tipping my hat towards the far more prestigious area of the two that are coming together, evolutionary theory itself needs to really take a, a step back and then another run up the hill because even people who are promoting an extended evolutionary synthesis will still leave variation selection within the lifetime of the individual off the table. And you just can't do it. You cannot do it and create a coherent account. It's hard to do. But the other part is you can't do it and then still ha and then have an applied discipline. And evolutionary uh, science needs to be an applied discipline in part. It doesn't make sense to develop these high-precision, high-scope principles and then leave them lying on the floor. So this partnership is not just about you know, it being recognized finally in a, in a way that's very firm about the importance of behavioral science to the larger picture. It's also what then happens synergistically when you bring these uh, islands and the academic archipelago together, and it turns out that uh, they change each other's thinking mutually. And, and we're still part of that uh, roller coaster ride where uh, David and I are, and not just us, there's a much larger group, are, uh, you know, walking down this yellow brick road and we're finding all kinds of interesting things there uh, that uh, I think are going to have a profound impact on, on the field as it played out on a much larger group of uh, colleagues. Wow. David, do you want to respond to any of that? Well, yeah. Well, let me just uh, add to it. Of course, Steve and I talk a lot and we're uh, really on the same page. So there's nothing to disagree with there, only some things to elaborate upon. And uh, a sense of history, academic history, I think is very important. Uh, one thing that happened to evolutionary thought was that it became highly gene-centric during the 20th century, as if the only kind of inheritance is genetic inheritance. Now that's being reversed. We have great books such as Evolution in Four Dimensions by uh, DeBlanca and uh, Lamb is an iconic book for basically going back to basics and defining evolution in terms of heredity, not just genes. This is known as the extended evolutionary synthesis. And then uh, a metaphor, not a metaphor, but an analogy that uh, Stephen I stressed, which I think is enormously helpful for integrating evolutionary psychology and behaviorism, is the immune system. Mm. Now, the immune system is something we understand very well, and it's said to have an adaptive and an innate component. The innate component is densely modular, we inherit it, and it does not change during our lifetime. It is something that evolved by genetic evolution and is triggered by environmental circumstances, just as the evolutionary psychologists like to point out. The adaptive component of the immune system is highly evolutionary. That's the ability of uh, antibodies to vary and for those that successfully bind to antigens to are uh, ramped up. So that's an evolutionary process that takes place during the lifetime of the organism. It is also densely modular if you look at the mechanisms. It's not by a happy accident that there's 100 million different antibodies and mechanisms that promote the ones that are selected. So the whole thing is densely modular, but also amazingly open-ended. Why can't we say the same thing about the human behavioral system? The human behavioral system... Because it offends me when you is, say that. 
not joking. <laughs> That's why. I don't think I really. How dare you? How dare anyone. you reduce me to a, to put to adoption? <laughs> well, but it's not a it's not a reduction when you when you I know. include I'm joking, the adaption you know. component. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I do. Yes, yes I do. Um, and I also think that it's um, very persuasive to make that comparison. So there is some additions to what uh, Steve was saying. I think that the um, evolutionary psychology done right acknowledges both an innate and adaptive component, and that's uh, the integration that we need between evolutionary psychology and the Skinnerian wing. As Steve mentioned uh, uh, Skinner's dying words, but uh, you don't have to wait that long. He wrote an iconic paper in 1981 titled Selection by Consequences, published in Science Magazine, might be his best-known work. And it's just as clear as a bell, anyone who reads just the abstract of that paper is that he was more or less envisioning what today we think of as cultural evolution, uh, which begins with uh, the individual as an evolving system. This also goes back to the Baldwin effect. And the Baldwin effect, the idea that learning leads genetic evolution, that learning is the leading edge of genetic evolution was proposed all the way back in the beginning of the 20th century, but has been this orphan concept all these years, did not play an important role in the modern synthesis, and only now is coming into its own, are we really beginning to comprehend what it means for first, individual behavioral flexibility, and second, cultural evolution, to be the leading edge of genetic evolution. And that's where dual inheritance theory and all of these things are heading. And it has enormous practical applications. I mean, once you really take this on board, the idea that we can use it to manage positive change in real world settings, both at the individual level and the population level, becomes just uh, self evident. And our book is is I, I would like to think an important step in, in those practical applications. Wow, wonderful, wonderful. And you both, if I may geek out a second, wrote about this in your BBS article, Evolving the Future. You talked about that metaphor of the mileage that you can get out of thinking about the behavioral system like the immune system. So that, that was a cool paper. You know, the way BBS works is you get a lot of people responding and were there any particular responses to your argument that you want to point out as, well, that's a fair point. That was a good point. You know, and it changed your thinking about it. I, I like to think of the BBS article as our first milestone that after uh, we had been working oh, almost six or eight years together, Tony, Dennis, Steve, and myself, then we wrote that article. And, the, and then this book is the second milestone. Uh, when I think back over the commentaries, that's not that I've read them uh, recently, but uh, what I see is uh, mostly receptivity, as I recall. And uh, the main thing is is that progress on these fronts, I think, uh, academic culture is so slow that progress gets mentioned gets measured in decades when it needs to get measured in in years. And so I think there's a problem of catalysis. I think that in order to um, get things to change more more uh, quickly. So I'm thinking that those commentaries, that was 2014. Now it's uh, 2018. Four years went by. <laughs> and how much has happened then? And not enough. So uh, we really need to uh, think in terms of uh, years, not decades for uh, for uh, both cultural, academic cultural change and, and cultural change in, in real world settings. You know, the commentaries were, were uh, I think, startlingly supportive in, in the sense of, you know, appreciating the effort. And, and it wasn't waved away. I think something has changed because, you, uh, you know, there were very dismissive things that happened in these early efforts. But the groundwork has been laid by all these different wings in their own way doing their slow but careful academic development and the ones that were a little challenging but were not because it, it was like oh i hadn't thought of that but were the ones where you really 
uh, or being challenged to put it into the context of an extended synthesis. And so we talked a little more about uh, Tinbergen's uh, four questions, for example, in the response to the commentaries as trying to see that, trying to help people see that what we're trying to do is put this into a, a well-rounded evolutionary uh, synthesis. But, you know, as, as that happens, this is the part where you begin to see change happening in all directions. There's double-headed arrows everywhere. You know, what I see as this has played out in my own thinking is much more of an appreciation of the dynamical system-like quality of the life of an individual, the life of a couple or a group, the life of a community and human life as part of all of life as part of, uh, you know, this almost planetary scale way of thinking. It keeps going up. You, you can't think just in once you get into multidimensional, multilevel, you can't just take a piece of it and say, I'm focused just on this, whatever it is, and then fail to understand as you do that, that what you're doing bears on the larger picture. And so if I'll pick one that David and I haven't really talked about at all, but I mentioned to him an impact that these years together have had on, on me. You know, I'm, I'm writing now about processes of change in psychotherapy. And what I find myself writing essentially this multi-level, multi-dimensional way of thinking about process of change in, in psychotherapy that is, you know, really stretches my ability even to think about how to study it because I, I find myself having to learn things like uh, how to do uh, complex network analyses and dynamical systems analyses and things that I don't think most researchers in psychotherapy do. I mean, they're doing randomized trials, which is fine, but it's so kludgy. It's so, and then their process accounts are, you know, things like mediational analyses, these very limited one-headed arrows, if they're a system, they're a really crude system. It's all linear and all goes in one direction. Nothing's recursive. Nothing interacts. It's not multidimensional. You have one or two things that you'd say, this is why therapy works. What nonsense. Of course, that's not. You're going to have to build in. I can see the time coming when people are actually literally doing things in psychotherapy, like doing oral swabs to looking at what happens with up and down regulation of, of, of genes through epigenetic processes. But that just that, not just appreciating the levels of analysis, but appreciating the multidimensional and dynamic nature of it. That's much more like how you would, in fact, analyze, let's say, the, the functioning human immune system than it is like, you know, just getting a, a blue ribbon for the evidence based therapy. I mean, what we, you know, the, the, the behavioral with a small b, the human uh, behavioral sciences really need to up their sophistication about the multidimensional and multi-level nature of the questions that they're asking across time. And so that these kind of crude one time boom, and it's in our measurement system. Psychometrics is wrong. In my opinion, it doesn't stand up to an evolutionary view. Group designs are wrong uh, or just so crude as an instrument. Uh, our process uh, designs and methods are wrong. Like, uh, uh, I said to my lab uh, last Friday, uh, David, I said, here's the effect of uh, uh, more than 10 years of David Sloan Wilson. I, I think 98% of the research we're doing in psychology is wrong. Wow. Wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Because that's you've touched well, on my, he touched on my field there. So why is psychometric? Which instruments in no, particular? Because, because they're the all mistake. wrong. They're all wrong. Like the big all five right, is wrong. Let's take down psychometrics. I come out of that tradition. Alan Edwards is my grandfather. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. My intellectual grandfather. A.R. Gilliland, who was at just Chicago school and had the first measure of it, uh, intelligence in infants is my great grandfather. So I come out of the psychometric lineage. John Cohn was my mentor and, and a, a psychometrician and tried to bring classic psychometric concepts into behavioral assessment. I think with a net negative, frankly, but a wonderful man, but I don't think it was a good idea because hmm. what psychometrics does is it says we're going to look at consistency by looking across items and people at a given point of time. And that's our fundamental unit, not within individuals across time. And, you know, Cattell had his P techniques. He knew he was doing it. He had a little matrix there. 
And, and you know, when they fought about factor analysis, they fought over this. Should we look at the clustering within individuals across time or should we look at clustering across items and people at a given point in time? And that other view won, which is an, a huge mistake. You wouldn't go out, think about this. You wouldn't go out into a natural environment and watch the behavior of a, a troop, let's say, and then say, you know, I'm really not interested in that animal, that animal, that animal, that animal. I'm interested in the average. Hmm. I'm interested in the average of the troop. You know, that basic move, which is deep inside psychometrics, yeah, uh, it fails. Is is that there's a set of assumptions that are required to do that called ergodic assumptions that the mathematicians in 1934 worked out and showed in physics, by the way, that that only works that the larger superset is a good measure of of uh, process only works under a set of assumptions which cannot be applied to individuals across time. As soon as you have a trend, because you'd have to assume that every animal is showing the same trend and sequence of how these different processes come together. That's nonsense. Of course, that's not true. So you end up with an average that reflects often no one. But when you like assess like the intervention effectiveness of an act intervention, you know, you have to have measures to actually you need to yeah, measure something right, now, right the measures are, the measures are, we're demanded even apa try to put it in the ethics that you genuflect the psychometrics but i think the psychometrics is going down i don't think it stands well, up. I think it's well one kind i mean one kind of i mean one kind of psychometrics might be going down but not all kinds i mean that's well, um uh, well, measure, but that's what you mean by psychometrics. If you mean classical psychometrics, the reason is it's the wrong level of analysis, I, in my opinion, for characterizing processes of uh, change and measuring. So if you went back and you, you do, let's say, ecological momentary assessment, you high density measurement, like you would do naturally if you were out in the field yeah. doing a biological study, and you look to see what are the trends yeah. for the, the organisms you're looking at one at a time and then collected. You can look at the group level. That's not what I'm saying. It doesn't have to be at the individual level, but it has to be respectful of the actual data spread across time. There's a different way of looking at quality of assessment than the way that we have come to view with essentially a latent variable that you're modeling. Yeah. There's nothing, you don't need the latent variable. This is a longer conversation. <laughs> I, I it probably takes but it. I, uh, I say it this yeah. way. There, there is an we're, evolutionary. We're definitely, we're definitely, we're, we're definitely, we're definitely drilling down here. I hope your audience is keeping up with us. But, oh, uh, they love it. I think they love this kind of nerdiness. But uh, I do want to refocus us after. Yeah, but I feel like I would feel guilty <laughs> if I didn't respond to what you just said real quick, though. I would feel guilty. So I do feel like there are is a great a there is a greater awareness in the field, like people like Will Fleeson, and there there are a bunch of researchers that are really interested in that within person variation level. Of analysis, and I'm totally with you that that level of analysis has been neglected for a lot of the field of personality psychology. Okay, I just wanted to say that, but we're, let's move on. And then maybe I'll get you back on someday and we can have a whole chat just about psychometrics. That could be fun. <laughs> so, Steve, how come when the first time you encountered David's work, you came home and you cried? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, poor David has had to hear the story three or three times. But uh, and I sort of swore I'd, I'm not going to subject him to it again. And here now you've you've made it happen. Uh, but you know the long the short. You don't have to answer it. <laughs> well, it would be like a, a person. It's a fine story. It's a fine. I can I can listen to it one more time. You know, it's like, like a person out in a desert wandering around who suddenly you know found an ice chest with the <laughs> with the diet coke in it or something. I mean, you know, it would be fair to say that uh, some of the evolutionary thinking in the, in the gene-centric era was really not friendly to uh, the idea of variation selection within the lifetime of the individual mm -hmm. and as being important, uh, number one. But number two is, you know, there is kind of a, David, I'm sorry to say it this way, but some of the evolutionists are mean. I mean, I go to their websites and stuff and I say, how do you do it? I mean, Golly, you know, they these knock down, drag out fights, you know, Stephen Jay Gould, you know, and Dawkins and, you know, and some of it. Well, they just, love it. They, oh, they live for it. It's no yeah. holds barred. I yeah. mean, it's like going to watch cage fighting or something. Yeah. It's academic cage fighting. Well, you know, I'm like suddenly, well, and most evolutionists, I, I literally, I had literally had laughed in my face 
I mean, I went to UCSD, I tell this story, and I'm giving a talk, uh, this is 25 years ago, to the behavioral geneticists, for some reason they asked me to do it, and, and the students are there, and I'm saying, you know, it is always a gene-environment interaction, always. It's a, you might as well say 100% of the variance if you add in, you know, just the right time frame. And the students literally laughed out loud in my face in a talk. What? Yeah, because if you do classic behavioral genetics with G and E and G times E with this incredible- Never interacts. Yeah, it never interacts. It never works. But of course, I mean, you can say things like, there's no interaction with uh, skin color and what? And it's because wherever you go, if you're the blackest of the black person, prejudice is there. It doesn't matter if you're raised together or raised apart. I mean, the idea that this isn't, well, and then you show. If you take something, my classic example is, is physical attractiveness. It's the most powerful demographic variable, even more than gender and race. Hmm. But we've done the studies. If you do a randomized trial, uh, you know, with repair, you know, with, with plastic surgery in almost every area where physical attractiveness looks like it's genetic. If you do it through classic things, all of the stuff, identical twins, hello, they're more likely to look similar, is called genetic. Because all of this social variance that comes from you're ugly and you're pretty, which is huge. It's called genetic because it's a genetic input to a consistent social system. But when you step out of it and you say, well, let's do a randomized trial of plastic surgery, it turns out all those effects go away. So they can't be genetic in that the, the way that people mean it. And, you know, good behavioral geneticists, well, if you get them in the corner and you fight for half an hour and you say, they'll always admit this is true. They always say, yeah, but it's not very plausible. It's not very important because... And they forget that, you know, like some of the early work, they didn't even keep track of fraternal twins, whether or not they were the same gender. In the early work, they didn't even keep track of female-female versus male-male versus male-female. And so I'm getting a little excited here. but <laughs> It's great. No, I feel like we need to do another podcast chat on behavioral genetics <laughs> now, I'm realizing as well. But um, so did you want to find yeah. somebody with this level of sophistication? who is saying something very different about the behavioral folks and who stop and say, well, wait a minute, that kind of fits my way of thinking. Yeah, It was enough to make me weep in the same way that a thirsty person would weep to find a, well, a, an ice, a glass of ice water. David is very special in general, but also within the field of evolutionary psychology. So I, I can totally see you know, that resonance that you had. I, I can resonate with that resonance that you had. You know, I do have some criticisms of what has been dubbed by, what's his name? He calls it pop evolutionary psychology. Who dubs it that? What's his name? David Bohr. David Bohr. Yeah, David Bohr, yeah. Yeah, so he refers to pop evolutionary psychology. And I think there is something there that there are, there are some uh, really misguided kind of theories within, within the field. I mean, obviously, the whole field of evolutionary psychology is not perfect, right? So how would you distinguish yourself, your perspective, from the sort of pop idea of, you know, we only evolved these models within this certain time frame that we're not still evolving, that all these other kinds of criticisms that he, he kind of raises about, about what he calls pop evolutionary psychology. Well, okay, so there's uh, more than one thing that needs to be said. Uh, David Bowler's book was a great book, by the way, mm. but I could acknowledge that without trashing evolutionary sure. psychology. And I think that the accusation that Evolutionary psychology is bad science, mm. is itself bad commentary. And, you know, I'm always reminded, social Darwinism, I mean, evolutionary thought has suffered under the label, pejorative label of social Darwinism for a whole century. That's a load of shit, too. That's a real bogeyman. And we have to be vigilant against these sort of bogeyman dismissals of what often ends up being uh, just perfectly fine science. I mean, give me a break. These are articles that make it through the peer review system. They appear in, in fine journals. And so uh, why would you call that junk science when they're actually part of the peer review, uh, uh, peer review system? David Schmidt, who's another evolutionary psychologist that I uh, admire, oh, yeah, me has too. A, a wonderful article in uh, This View of Life. On, the article is titled, Yes, But. In hmm. fact, so the idea is this is, oh, yes, but some critique, but when more studies are done, it's, oh, yes, but, and it's nothing but a series of yes, buts in order to 
maintain this position that there's something junky about evolutionary psychology. So in evolutionary psychology, there's a very, very important baby in the bathwater. And what uh, David Buller was doing uh, was, I think, he was you know, separating the baby and the, the bathwater. Yeah. And what we need to do is we, we need, need to recognize that most important schools of thought have a baby in addition to the bathwater. The idea that some important school of thought would arise and, and smart people would develop it and so on, and there'd be no baby whatsoever. Yeah. There's an evolutionist named A.J. Kane. He was an ecological geneticist uh, way back, and he has this quote that I have on my door, which is, uh, only the shallowest mind can believe that in a great controversy, one side is mere folly. Yeah. So as we talk with each other, yeah. let's look for the baby and aggregate the babies and throw out the bathwaters. It's good. So why don't we, in the remaining time we have here in this conversation, then focus on some of these really great ideas in this volume that you two edited, because I think that these are examples of good science, of, of a good application of your perspectives. We can start with, I like Duckworth's chapter. So Renee Duckworth, she put forward this metaphor, the skeleton metaphor, you know, that in order to be flexible, we need a skeleton, but a skeleton is inflexible, and so inflexibility go hand in hand. That's a that's the most wonderful thing to say. I I praise that in the book, and uh, isn't that isn't that a wonderful juxtaposition yes. of ideas? It's really wonderful, and it dovetails with your immune system analogy as well. Yeah. Can we talk about our chapter reconciling the tension between behavioral change and stability? I'm really interested in this tension within my own field of personality psychology because at the highest level of the personality structure, we have plasticity and we have stability. Those are the big two that lie above the big five. And, you know, if we have too much stability, then we're not going to change and grow. But if we're always exploring and growing, we lose a sense of like who we are and, you know, things can get very anxiety ridden fast. So I was wondering if you could talk a little about how your, Scott, both your perspectives. Before we, yeah. Scott, before we do that, let me just say for the benefit of your audience, uh, the structure of the book is an innovative structure. What we did was we picked a number of major topics and for each of those topics, we commissioned authors from contextual behavioral sciences and, and authors from evolutionary science to write separate chapters. And then we had them read each other's chapters and to have a dialogue, which was moderated by either Steve and myself. And then um, those dialogues appeared along with the two chapters that repeated for a number of different topics. So I think that makes it a, a quite original in its organization and a lot of fun to read, basically, because you hear first one side, then the other, then the conversation. So uh, now, now let's proceed to Renee's. Uh, oh yeah, agreed. Uh, chat. Very innovative, and you also say in your book that you didn't tell the authors what to write, and so all these kind of linkages and things just organically came together. So I, I wanted to raise that point as well. We did it essentially as a kind of a grand, a grand test because yeah. we didn't know this could have really gone badly. Because yeah. we said, here's a topic, very general topic. You write about it the way you want to write about it from your, and by golly. These things overlap, not in, in a way that does me tooism, but actually there's a dynamic kind of thing of you could see both sides. And, you know, this uh, quote that uh, David was talking about of really coming into this, uh, I, I hear I was criticizing being mean and that I was talking about the psychometrician and behavior geneticists in kind of a mean way. But it wasn't that, that that's wrong. It's just that there's a, additional ways to look at it. And, Absolutely. you know, I think what is, what is neat about the uh, skeletal metaphors, it reminds you of this combination, very much like the immune system example. And in different contexts, you take something like a concept that's very close to my heart, let's say psychological flexibility, uh, defined as emotional cognitive openness, attentional flexibility, the connection with your values. It depends on how you measure it, but you can find things like emergency first responders, for example, who are who engage in emotionally suppressive behavior while they're you know, triaging people who are you know, have massive energies in front of them. And doesn't that make sense? I mean, would you want your first responders to be crying while they're trying to, you know, pick who's, mm -hmm. who might be saved uh, with a, a big auto uh, accident? I'd say, no, go. Now, working with them as individuals, I want them to go home and to have an area to put their emotions that were there of horror and whatever. But in the situation, I want them to have that kind of attentional flexibility. It might even look like suppression. It might have looked like rigidity. 
One of the things I worry about, however, and this will get me over into personality psychology and that earlier rant uh, very easily, is in order to detect the differences and the importance of it, you have to look within the, the units you're looking at across time and situation. And in a way, that with methodology that really fits that. And so the whole idea of personality, let's say, you know, that looks like a rigid structure when you go across at one time, big five, et cetera. Some of that's built into our language systems. Let's remember where big five came from. Yeah. We don't have time for that story, but you know it well. Mm-hmm. And how committed it was to language structures and even English and the way it was originally developed. But when you do that, there's a guy named Molinar at Penn State who's done that looking within individual cross time with a whole bunch of people. And, and often you don't see those consistencies. You don't see people who have you know, this big five attribute, this personality in all situations behaving that way, and, or maybe even in most situations and times. So in order to really balance flexibility and structure, we've got to look at function, context, and longitudinal development. And that's inside evolutionary thinking with uh, Evo Devo and, you know, some of the things where we really need to do that also in the behavioral science way. But the point is well taken that it's not all flexibility and it's not all structure. It's both dynamically across time to fit context. Well, that is what's distinctive about contextual behavioral science. Exactly. Is it focuses so much on the context. And I think one personality psychologist that got it right was Walter Mischel. I believe I'm saying his name correctly. And in evolutionary terms, what he was saying is, is that what, what, what people have by way of temperament or personality that's unchanging, relatively unchanging, is a norm of reaction. And the norm of reaction basically specifies different phenotypes for different contexts. So the, the idea of an individual as a norm of reaction I think captures the a stable element and a flexible element, a little bit like the skeleton as being needed for movement. Did you see the uh, debates between Walter Michel and, by the way, he passed away recently. Yeah, and, sure. And Seymour Epstein, those kind of classic debates in the 70s on whether or not personality is has a general component or a specific component, and then they like reconciled it. Anyway, I found that really stimulating, those core debates. And I think Seymour Epstein really uh, was thinking about it probably even in a better way than Walter. Well, I think we have more to go on that. I think as we get into a a more fine-grained, multidimensional, multi-level examination, we're going to have to go back and look at some of these classic concepts. And I see it over and over again. Some things that we've settled that that they're they're structural. I'll give one that is actually very dangerous for the evolutionists, and it touches the behaviorists because uh, Dick Ernstein was even involved with it. Is the you know the bell curve kind of thing around the issue of, of intelligence? Hmm. And I am not at all convinced that we know what which parts are fixed and stable. We're back to the same kind of thing having to do with mm. behavioral genetics I was talking about before. And because you can create extraordinary environments. Mm. And when extraordinary environments can be created in many different ways. And so you should never, ever say, this is it. Because you don't know if you don't know the full range of things. So if you take, let's say, the, uh, you know, the fixed patterns that are there in uh, you know, the characterological traits that are shown maybe even at birth of a, of a particular individual. Yes, but under extraordinary circumstances, those can be different. And so you you look at things, you know, like, you know, twin studies with schizophrenia or something, and you, you say, oh, okay, well, this person developed schizophrenia, this one didn't, they're identical twins. Yeah, but look at what happened to this person. And you begin to dive into, for example, the kind of life trajectories that can take a tendency, a predisposition, and turn it into a full kind of behavioral phenotype. I think we have to do the same thing with intelligence. I think we've gotten way too into only looking at the level of the collective. And the behavior analysts over here, let me just say a little bit of chest thumping. You know, we now have four, or is it five, randomized trials showing we can go in, and with fluid intelligence, the part that doesn't, you know, move, we're moving these things by five, six, eight, nine, depending on the study points. And people don't yet believe it. And I'm not yet ready to let my hair on fire, and I don't have any anyway. But <laughs> but yeah. I'm beginning to think, you know, the way they're doing it is by pushing fluency of relational learning. You know, the stuff coming out of relational frame theory, 
which is a very weird thing to do. Nobody's going to do that in education. You know, if I were you and you were me, what would I have? If today were yesterday and yesterday today, and I were you and you were me, what would I have? And you're never going to do that in a normal academic classroom. It looks nuts. But if you understand the unit, you can create extraordinary environments that maybe, maybe I'm not declaring a win. I'm just saying it's possible. And there are some studies there, so this isn't crazy. So how much is the skeleton? How much is the soft tissue? Let's find out. And I think we're going to well, have one of my favorite examples of what was taken to be a sort of a, an innate, not quite an innate difference. It's the marshmallow test. And so the marshmallow test is supposed to be something that if a kid fails the marshmallow test and that predicts life outcomes. Well, it hasn't replicated recently. What's that? that? That study hasn't that? replicated recently. Well, the study I'm thinking of, and I, I don't remember the uh, the author, but what they did was they basically Michelle. they built what's that? It's Walter Michelle again? Or... Yes, I think so. Yeah. Go ahead. No, no, this is oh. more recent. Okay. So, so oh. uh, it's a a woman at the University of Rochester, and what she observed in the field, in an inner city neighborhood, was a little girl was sitting on the on the stairs, and someone gave her an ice cream cone, and before she got a first lick, someone else took away the ice cream cone. And so she had a aha moment, and she did a set of experiments in which uh, she would uh, do the marshmallow test, but in, in one condition, she would build up trust with the little person mm. um, that uh, established a trusting relationship versus not. And after first establishing a trusting relationship, then the same kids that would fail the marshmallow test uh, passed it with ease. So what was stable was the untrusting nature of their social environment. That's what didn't change. It wasn't their lack of flexibility as a mm. as an individual. So there's a good example, I think, of a of something that's environmental, which is misinterpreted as something which is a, a stable property of the individual. And you know, great. If I, if I could jump in because it's yeah. such a good point. I mean even even the uh, skeleton example, the Evo Devo folks show if you have some early, early injury to your skeletal structure. You can often end up with a modification that allows you to work perfectly well, such mm -hmm. a, an injury to your hip. I mean, some of the Evo Devo work with, uh, you know, animals are set up so that they can adjust to injury, even to what's structural and consistent in such a way as to adjust to that and find a way to a four-legged animal, let's say, have had a severe injury to function pretty well with one limb that's uh, injured. And it's a metaphor for the fact of what point I was trying to make, which is that if you think in a dynamical system way, multidimensional, multi-level, you should never turn it into tinker toys or billiard blocks. It's never a cartoon. Mm. And that doesn't mean everything is modifiable within the lifetime of the individual. It doesn't mean that. But the you know, evolutionary science is a science of, of change and stability emerging in the context of change. So you it's a dialectic and you never should sort of draw a circle and say, this is in this camp. No, it may be able to move. And, and when you start thinking now with application, you know, I start thinking of, of and, and, and you raised a good point about social Darwinism, but on the one hand, on the other hand, until there's an applied evolutionary psychology that tells the public that not only can this help you understand life, this view of life is a powerful one. Mm -hmm. It can help us as a human community change areas where we all know we need to change mm -hmm. around you know issues like racism or stepping up to the challenge of climate change and things of that kind you need an applied evol evolution science and uh, you know you don't have to go too far when you get into cartoon like evolutionary thinking of people making evolutionary appeals to things that if you step back and look at it are gender biased or racist or classists or i mean and so and, you know, there are really good evolutionists there in the past. I mean, even Darwin made a few mistakes and how he talked about the Maori and things like that. So, you know, I think we have to sort of step back and take where we are now in evolutionary thinking and really bring it into the life of the human community. Because the reason why people don't reject it when we step forward is I think people kind of go like, oh, that makes sense. And they've been yearning for it. You know, Darwin's not going away. Evolution's not going away. Everybody knows that. Everybody who's thoughtful knows that. But it's only, we only had 100 years or so to adjust to it. You know, we need some time and we're starting to. And I think when we finally get to the point where we can walk into a legislature and we can say, you know what? We can do something about that gang violence. 
you know, we could do something about those poor performances. And those are now appearing, and David's been a champion of it. And they're not cartoons. They say something that we, there's a signal and a noise that we can chase and maybe make a difference. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to uh, make sure to provide a capsule description of acceptance and commitment therapy or training as a, a managing the evolutionary process, if I might. And uh, this is a good time. Is that, well, I might have Perfect. might have better come earlier in the in the interview, but better late than um, never. So one fundamental insight about evolution is that what counts as adaptive in the evolutionary sense of the word often deviates from what counts as adaptive in the normative sense of the word. What we might like in a normative sense for us as individuals and as cultures is frequently different than what is adaptive in the evolutionary sense. And so many of our problems, many of what we regard as pathologies, are actually adaptive in the evolutionary sense of the word. So for example, um, being nice to your family members becomes nepotism. Uh, being nice to your friends becomes cronyism and corruption. Mm. At the individual level, if I'm just avoiding anxiety attacks, that's adaptive. And if I'm depressed and I don't make use of opportunities, that's adaptive. So, so many things that we want to change, in fact, are what these evolutionary processes, whether they're modular, evolved in the past, or whether they're reinforced in the present, are basically evolutionary processes taking us where we don't want to go. And so what therapy is, and what training is, is managing the evolutionary evolutionary processes in order to align adaptations in the evolutionary sense of the word within the normative sense of the word. And when you look at what acceptance and commitment training does, it does exactly that. So here's my understanding of acceptance and commitment training, speaking in front of the master. (laughs) Uh So in the first place, and this could be done by individuals or groups, there's a focusing on what your true goals are. What do you really want to accomplish in your life. And so this, in evolutionary terms, becomes the target of selection. We have, it's like artificial breeding, basically. We have chosen a target of selection, which is our normative goal. Then we focus on variation. And when people are in need of therapy or training, often it's because their behavioral repertoire has become fused around their various problems. There are not much variation there. And so what the therapeutic process does is it encourages flexibility. That would be variation. And then to select what takes us towards our valued goals, even if some things won't change. So it might be that you won't get rid of your panic attack, let us say, but nevertheless, is there a way that you can work around it in order to achieve your valued goals. And so therefore, there's a recognition of inflexibility, that there's some things that won't change or won't change easily. But nevertheless, we still can change in the ways that matter most to us. And so this is a just a a very short description of how we can envision the process of training or, or therapy as a managed evolutionary process at the individual level, or just as much at the level of groups and even large-scale populations. If I can build on that, you know, the ACT folk consciously have tried to do this and then, you know, have principles around variation and selection and retention, you know, building habits and context, building attention and from a conscious point of view and dimensions, you know, being concerned about, uh, you, you know, your emotions, thoughts, uh, motivation, sense of self, et cetera, important dimensions, and levels, being concerned about yourself, you know, physically and your your health and sleep patterns and so forth, and socially, your relationships, the groups you, and those six, variation, selection, retention, and context at the right dimension and level is my kind of uh, cheat sheet version of, uh, of evolutionary thinking. And what, when you get to that level, and then you look at behavior change. Part of the exciting thing, I think, for evolutionists, if they see it, and for behavioral scientists, if they realize they've been doing it, is that we have all along been doing applied evolution science in the behavior change fields. And it's only because we haven't been thinking about that way that we we failed to notice it. 
And I, I'm involved in a project right now that's an attempt to prove that. And what we're doing is we're looking at every single study on psychological intervention ever done by every psychotherapy, every behavior change method that we can find and list that had a randomized trial with a treatment as usual or a wait list compared to your active intervention that claimed mediation, that claimed a statistical test of the functionally important pathways to change. And we've, we've started out with 55,000 studies. We're looking at every one multiple times, and we're down now to, it'll look like we have to score about a 1,000 studies. Wow. But the important part of it is that what we're trying to do is score it in terms of a system. We've published it, and an article just came out. I say we, there's Stefan Hoffman's team and myself at Boston University uh, in behavior research and therapy just came out, uh, or at least in the online version. We're looking at you know, just in the words of the people who brought this thing to the table. Hmm. Is that particular concept one that makes sense in terms of encouraging healthy variation, encouraging healthy context sensitivity, altering the selection criteria, you know, looking at levels of analysis and looking at the, the social context, et cetera, or the physical health context, or, you know, putting in practices that would lead to retention of uh, games. And so far, it looks like we can do it. It looks like we can take basically everything, say it this way, grandiose way, everything we know about the functionally important processes of change that have been seen in a randomized trial in the history of science from a psychological point of view and score it all by evolutionary criteria wow. in a pretty reliable way. And if you can do that, it means that 35,000 feet, we've been evolutionists from the beginning. And, and part of me wants to say, of course, because exactly what scientific principles do is they explain in this broad scope but high precision way what is already going on. I mean, you didn't have to know about the theory of relativity for those principles to apply to what you're doing. They apply to what you're doing. And in the same way, evolutionary principles at the level of any system that you're trying to change, whether it's an individual or, or a group, a culture, you know, your your body being uh, functioning better, health and dealing with cancer, on and on, any system is going to alter the processes that explain how complex systems evolve. And so knowing that, when we know that, boy, are we going to do better at that? I would say, you think? I mean, part of what has ha what happens with principles is once you get beyond just techniques and you start seeing principles, then you begin to manage these processes and managing evolutionary processes is what we've been doing in the behavioral sciences from the beginning, but we just didn't have a way of talking about it until multidimensionality and multi-level thinking got in there enough to give us a place at the table. Wow. You too. <laughs> what a team. What a team. Uh, you know, I said this last time to you, uh, Stephen, when you were on my podcast last time, I said, you're this rare combination of sheer nerdiness plus a real humanity, a real true caring and compassion for the betterment of the world. And David, your research program throughout the years has been very pro-social lens, the evolutionary lens, but the pro-social aspect. So what a combination you two are. Can I end this chat today with a quote from you, Stephen, that I just absolutely adore, and I just want to read it to the audience. As scientists, I don't think we should be ashamed of saying that we're interested in developing knowledge that has a pro-social impact. We want to play science in the high-integrity way science should be played, but the purpose of playing the game that way is to develop knowledge that can be vetted against pro-social criteria. It is entirely within our prerogative as human beings to say, this is what we want to do with our careers and lives with this wonderful tool called science. In an abstract sense, science is values-free, but in the lives of scientists and of the consumers of scientific knowledge, it is anything but. So thank you both for joining your superpowers together to increase knowledge in a way that will increase prosociality in the world. Thank you. And by the way, our next book is called Prosocial. We just finished it. So <laughs> <laughs> are you serious? <laughs> yes. With our no, with our with our colleague Paul Atkins. Yep, we got to just just sent in. So just that's our next book, Prosocial. Oh, wonderful. Well, I can't wait to read that one and devour that one as well. And, and there's a lot of topics, obviously, we couldn't cover today. But for listeners who want to 
dive into the uh, this grand synthesis for a wide range of things that we didn't talk about, like childhood development, uh, for the development of empathy, for organizational development, for understanding the evolutionary mismatch of physical and health. These are all just teasers I'm throwing out there. Um, definitely check out their book. So thanks again, guys, for chatting with me today. Great time. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening to the Psychology Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, please add a rating and review of the Psychology Podcast on iTunes. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the podcast, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's better H E L P dot com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side.